Section 11 of What is Property? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What is Property? An Inquiry into the Principle of Right and of Government by Pierre-Joseph Proudhon Translated by Benjamin R. Tucker Chapter 3, Part 3 Labor as the Efficient Cause of the Domain of Property That Labor Leads to Equality of Property Admit, however, that labor gives a right of property in material. Why is not this principle universal? Why is the benefit of this pretended law confined to a few and denied to the mass of laborers? A philosopher, arguing that all animals sprang up formerly out of the earth, warmed by the rays of the sun, almost like mushrooms, on being asked why the earth no longer yielded crops of that nature, replied, because it is old and has lost its fertility. Has labor, once so fecund, likewise become sterile? Why does the tenant no longer acquire through his labor the land which was formerly acquired by the labor of the proprietor? Because, they say, it is already appropriated. That is no answer. A farm yields fifty bushels per hectare. The skill and labor of the tenant double this product. The increase is created by the tenant. Suppose the owner, in a spirit of moderation rarely met with, does not go to the extent of absorbing this product by raising the rent, but allows the cultivator to enjoy the results of his labor. Even then, justice is not satisfied. The tenant, by improving the land, has imparted a new value to the property. He therefore has a right to a part of the property. If the farm was originally worth 100,000 francs, and if by the labor of the tenant its value has risen to 150,000 francs, the tenant who produced that extra value is the legitimate proprietor of one-third of the farm. Monsieur Charles Comte could not have pronounced the doctrine false, for it is he who said, quote, Men who increase the fertility of the earth are no less useful to their fellow men than if they should create new land. End quote. Why, then, is not this rule applicable to the man who improves the land, as well as to him who clears it? The labor of the former makes the land worth one, that of the latter makes it worth two. Both create equal values. Why not accord to both equal property? I defy any one to refute this argument without again falling back on the right of first occupancy. But, it will be said, even if your wish should be granted, property would not be distributed much more evenly than now. Land does not go on increasing in value forever. After two or three seasons, it attains its maximum fertility. That which is added by the agricultural art results rather from the progress of science and the diffusion of knowledge than from the skill of the cultivator. Consequently, the addition of a few laborers to the mass of proprietors would be no argument against property. This discussion would indeed prove a well-nigh useless one if our labors culminated in simply extending land privilege and industrial monopoly, in emancipating only a few hundred laborers out of the millions of proletaires. But this also is a misconception of our real thought 
and does but prove the general lack of intelligence and logic. If the laborer who adds to the value of a thing has a right of property in it, he who maintains this value acquires the same right. For what is maintenance? It is incessant addition, continuous creation. What is it to cultivate? It is to give the soil its value every year. It is, by annually renewed creation, to prevent the diminution or destruction of the value of a piece of land. Admitting, then, that property is rational and legitimate, admitting that rent is equitable and just, I say that he who cultivates acquires property by as good a title as he who clears, or he who improves, and that every time a tenant pays his rent he obtains a fraction of property in the land entrusted to his care, the denominator of which is equal to the proportion of rent paid. Unless you admit this, you fall into absolutism and tyranny. You recognize class privileges. You sanction slavery. Whoever labors becomes a proprietor. This is an inevitable deduction from the acknowledged principles of political economy and jurisprudence. And when I say proprietor, I do not mean simply, as do our hypocritical economists, proprietor of his allowance, his salary, his wages, I mean proprietor of the value which he creates, and by which the master alone profits. As all this relates to the theory of wages and the distribution of products, and as this matter never has been even partially cleared up, I ask permission to insist on it. This discussion will not be useless to the work in hand. Many persons talk of admitting working people to share in the products and profits. But in their minds, this participation is pure benevolence they have never shown, perhaps never suspected, that it was a natural, necessary right, inherent in labor, and inseparable from the function of producer, even in the lowest forms of his work. This is my proposition. The laborer retains, even after he has received his wages, a natural right of property in the thing which he has produced. I again quote Monsieur Charles Comte. Some laborers are employed in draining marshes, in cutting down trees and brushwood, in a word, in cleaning up the soil. They increase the value, they make the amount of property larger, they are paid for the value which they add in the form of food and daily wages. It then becomes the property of the capitalist. End quote. The price is not sufficient. The labor of the workers has created a value. Now this value is their property, but they have neither sold nor exchanged it. And you, capitalist, you have not earned it. That you should have a partial right to the whole in return for the materials that you have furnished and the provisions that you have supplied is perfectly just. You contributed to the production. You ought to share in the enjoyment. But your right does not annihilate that of the laborers, who in spite of you, have been your colleagues in the work of production. Why do you talk of wages? The money with which you pay the wages of the laborers remunerates them for only a few years of the perpetual possession which they have abandoned to you. Wages is the cost of the daily maintenance and refreshment of the laborer. You are wrong in calling it the price of a sale. The working man has sold nothing. 
he knows neither his right nor the extent of the concession which he has made to you nor the meaning of the contract which you pretend to have made with him on his side utter ignorance on yours error and surprise not to say deceit and fraud let us make this clearer by another and more striking example no one is ignorant of the difficulties that are met with the conversion of untilled land into arable and productive land these difficulties are so great that usually an isolated man would perish before he could put the soil in a condition to yield him even the most meager living to that end are needed the united and combined efforts of society and all the resources of industry Monsieur charles comte quotes on this subject numerous and well-authenticated facts little thinking that he is amassing testimony against his own system let us suppose that a colony of twenty or thirty families establishes itself in a wild district covered with underbrush and forests and from which by agreement the natives consent to withdraw each one of these families possesses a moderate but sufficient amount of capital of such a nature as a colonist would be apt to choose animals seeds tools and a little money and food the land having been divided each one settles himself as comfortably as possible and begins to clear away the portion allotted to him but after a few weeks of fatigue such as they never before have known of inconceivable suffering of ruinous and almost useless labor our colonists begin to complain of their trade their condition seems hard to them they curse their sad existence suddenly one of the shrewdest among them kills a pig cures a part of the meat and resolves to sacrifice the rest of his provisions goes to find his companions in misery friends he begins in a very benevolent tone how much trouble it costs you to do a little work and live uncomfortably a fortnight of labor has reduced you to your last extremity let us make an arrangement by which you shall all profit i offer you provisions and wine you shall get so much every day we will work together and zounds my friends we will be happy and contented would it be possible for empty stomachs to resist such an invitation the hungriest of them follow the treacherous tempter they go to work the charm of society emulation joy and mutual assistance double their strength the work can be seen to advance singing and laughing they subdue nature in a short time the soil is thoroughly changed the mellowed earth waits only for the seed that done the proprietor pays his laborers who in going away return him their thanks and grieve that the happy days which they have spent with him are over others follow this example always with the same success then these installed the rest disperse each one returns to his grubbing but while grubbing it is necessary to live while they have been clearing away for their neighbor they have done no clearing for themselves one year's seed time and harvest is already gone they had calculated that in lending their labor they could not but gain since they would save their own provisions and while living better would get still more money false calculation they have created for another the means wherewith to produce and have created nothing for themselves the difficulties of clearing remain the same their clothing wears out their provisions give out 
Soon their purse becomes empty for the profit of the individual for whom they have worked, and who alone can furnish the provisions which they need, since he alone is in a position to produce them. Then when the poor grubber has exhausted his resources, the man with the provisions, like the wolf in the fable who scents his victim from afar, again comes forward. One he offers to employ again by the day. From another he offers to buy at a favorable price a piece of his bad land which is not and never can be of any use to him. That is, he uses the labor of one man to cultivate the field of another for his own benefit. So that at the end of twenty years, of the thirty individuals originally equal in point of wealth, five or six have become proprietors of the whole district, while the rest have been philanthropically dispossessed. In this century of bourgeoisie morality, in which I have had the honor to be born, the moral sense is so debased that I should not be at all surprised if I were asked by many a worthy proprietor what I see in this that is unjust and illegitimate. Debased creature, galvanized corpse, how can I expect to convince you if you cannot tell robbery when I show it to you? A man, by soft and insinuating words, discovers the secret of taxing others that he may establish himself. Then, once enriched by their united efforts, he refuses, on the very conditions which he himself dictated, to advance the well-being of those who made his fortune for him. And you ask how such conduct is fraudulent? Under the pretext that he has paid his laborers, that he owes them nothing more, that he has nothing to gain by putting himself at the service of others, while his own occupations claim his attention, he refuses, I say, to aid others in getting a foothold, as he was aided in getting his own. And when in the impotence of their isolation these poor laborers are compelled to sell their birthright, he, this ungrateful proprietor, this knavish upstart, stands ready to put the finishing touch to their deprivation and their ruin. And you think that just? Take care. I read in your startled countenance the reproach of a guilty conscience, much more clearly than the innocent astonishment of involuntary ignorance. The capitalist, they say, has paid the laborers their daily wages. To be accurate, it must be said that the capitalist has paid as many times one day's wage as he has employed laborers each day, which is not at all the same thing. For he has paid nothing for that immense power which results from the union and harmony of laborers and the convergence and simultaneousness of their efforts. Two hundred grenadiers stood the obelisk of Luxor upon its base in a few hours. Do you suppose that one man could have accomplished the same task in two hundred days? Nevertheless, on the books of the capitalist, the amount of wages paid would have been the same. Well, a desert to prepare for cultivation, a house to build, factory to run, all these are obelisks to erect, mountains to move. The smallest fortune, the most insignificant establishment, the setting in motion of the lowest industry, 
demand the concurrence of so many different kinds of labor and skill that one man could not possibly execute the whole of them it is astonishing that the economists never have called attention to this fact strike a balance then between the capitalist's receipts and his payments the laborer needs a salary which will enable him to live while he works for unless he consumes he cannot produce whoever employs a man owes him maintenance and support or wages enough to procure the same that is the first thing to be done in all production i admit for the moment that in this respect the capitalist has discharged his duty it is necessary that the laborer should find in his production in addition to his present support a guarantee of his future support otherwise the source of production would dry up and his productive capacity would become exhausted in other words the laborer accomplished must give birth perpetually to new labor such is the universal law of reproduction in this way the proprietor of a farm finds one in his crops means not only to support himself and his family but of maintaining and improving his capital of feeding his livestock in a word means of new labor and continual reproduction two in his ownership of a productive agency a permanent basis of cultivation and labor but he who lends his services what is his basis of cultivation the proprietor's presumed need of him and the unwarranted supposition that he wishes to employ him just as the commoner once held his land by the munificence and condescension of the lord so today the working man holds his labor by the condescension and necessities of the master and proprietor that is what is called possession by a precarious title footnote precarious from precor i pray because the act of concession expressly signified that the lord in answer to the prayers of his men or slaves has granted them permission to labor End of footnote. but this precarious condition is an injustice for it implies an inequality in the bargain the laborer's wages exceed but little his running expenses and do not assure him wages for tomorrow while the capitalist finds in the instrument produced by the laborer a pledge of independence and security for the future now this reproductive leaven this eternal germ of life this preparation of the land and manufacture of implements for production constitutes the debt of the capitalist to the producer which he never pays and it is this fraudulent denial which causes the poverty of the laborer the luxury of idleness and the inequality of conditions this it is above all other things which has been so fitly named the exploitation of man by man one of three things must be done either the laborer must be given a portion of the product in addition to his wages or the employer must render the laborer an equivalent in productive service or else he must pledge himself to employ him forever division of the product reciprocity of service or guarantee of perpetual labor from the adoption of one of these courses the capitalist cannot escape 
but it is evident that he cannot satisfy the second and third of these conditions he can neither put himself at the service of the thousands of working men who directly or indirectly have aided him in establishing himself nor employ them all for ever he has no other course left him then but a division of the property but if the property is divided all conditions will be equal there will be no more large capitalists or large proprietors consequently when m charles comte following out his hypothesis shows us his capitalist acquiring one after another the products of his employees labor he sinks deeper and deeper into the mire and as his argument does not change our reply of course remains the same Quote, other laborers are employed in building some quarry the stone others transport it others cut it and still others put it in place each of them adds a certain value to the material which passes through his hands and this value the product of his labor is his property he sells it as fast as he creates it to the proprietor of the building who pays him for it in food and wages divide et impera divide and you shall command divide and you shall grow rich divide and you shall deceive men you shall daze their minds you shall mock at justice separate laborers from each other perhaps each one's daily wage exceeds the value of each individual's product but that is not the question under consideration a force of one thousand men working twenty days has been paid the same wages that one would be paid for working fifty-five years but this force of one thousand has done in twenty days what a single man could not have accomplished though he had labored for a million centuries is the exchange an equitable one once more no when you have paid all the individual forces the collective force still remains to be paid consequently there remains always a right of collective property which you have not acquired and which you enjoy unjustly admit that twenty days wages suffice to feed lodge and clothe this multitude for twenty days thrown out of employment at the end of that time what will become of them if as fast as they create they abandon their creations to the proprietors who will soon discharge them while the proprietor firm in his position thanks to the aid of all the laborers dwells in security and fears no lack of labor or bread the laborer's only dependence is upon the benevolence of this same proprietor to whom he has sold and surrendered his liberty if then the proprietor shielding himself behind his comfort and his rights refuses to employ the laborer how can the laborer live he has ploughed an excellent field and cannot sow it he has built an elegant and commodious house and cannot live in it he has produced all and can enjoy nothing labor leads us to equality every step that we take brings us nearer to it and if laborers had equal strength diligence and industry clearly their fortunes would be equal also 
indeed if as is pretended and as we have admitted the laborer is proprietor of the value which he creates it follows one that the laborer acquires at the expense of the idle proprietor two that all production being necessarily collective the laborer is entitled to a share of the products and profits commensurate with his labor three that all accumulated capital being social property no one can be its exclusive proprietor these inferences are unavoidable these alone would suffice to revolutionize our whole economical system and change our institutions and our laws why do the very persons who laid down this principle now refuse to be guided by it why do the says the contes the hennequins and others after having said that property is born of labor seek to fix it by occupation and prescription but let us leave these sophists to their contradictions and blindness the good sense of the people will do justice to their equivocations let us make haste to enlighten it and show it the true path equality approaches already between it and us but a short distance intervenes Tomorrow even this distance will have been traversed. That in society all wages are equal. When the St. Simonians and the Fourierists, and in general all who in our day are connected with social economy and reform, inscribe upon their banner, to each according to his capacity, to each according to its results, St. Simon, to each according to his capital, his labor, and his skill, Fourier. They mean, although they do not say it in so many words, that products of nature, procured by labor and industry, are a reward, a palm, a crown, offered to all kinds of preeminence and superiority. They regard the land as an immense arena in which prizes are contended for. No longer is it true with lances and swords, by force and by treachery, but by acquired wealth by knowledge, talent, and by virtue itself. In a word, they mean, and everybody agrees with them, that the greatest capacity is entitled to the greatest reward, and to use the mercantile phraseology, which has at least the merit of being straightforward, that salaries must be governed by capacity and its results. The disciples of these two self-styled reformers cannot deny that such is their thought, for in doing so they would contradict their official interpretations and would destroy the unity of their systems furthermore such denial on their part is not to be feared the two sects glory in laying down as a principle in equality of conditions reasoning from nature who they say intended the inequality of capacities they boast only of one thing namely that their political system is so perfect that the social inequalities always correspond with the natural inequalities they no more trouble themselves to inquire whether inequality of conditions i mean of salaries is possible than they do to fix a measure of capacity in st simon's system the st simonian priest determines the capacity of each by virtue of his pontifical infallibility in imitation of the roman church in Fourier's, the ranks and merits are decided by vote, an imitation of the constitutional regime. Clearly, 
the great man is an object of ridicule to the reader he did not mean to tell his secret to each according to his capacity to each capacity according to its results to each according to his capital his labor and his skill since the death of saint simon and fourier not one among their numerous disciples has attempted to give to the public a scientific demonstration of this grand maxim and i would wager a hundred to one that no fourierist even suspects that this biform aphorism is susceptible to two interpretations to each according to his capacity to each capacity according to its results to each according to his capital his labor and his skill this proposition taken as they say in sensu obvio in the sense usually attributed to it is false absurd unjust contradictory hostile to liberty friendly to tyranny antisocial and was unluckily framed under the express influence of the property idea and first capital must be crossed off the list of elements which are entitled to a reward the fourierists as far as i have been able to learn from a few of their pamphlets deny the right of occupancy and recognize no basis of property save labor starting with a like premise they would have seen had they reasoned upon the matter that capital is a source of production to its proprietor only by virtue of the right of occupancy and that this production is therefore legitimate indeed if labor is the sole basis of property i cease to be proprietor of my field as soon as i receive rent for it from another this we have shown beyond all cavil it is the same with all capital so that to put capital in an enterprise is by the law's decision to exchange it for an equivalent sum in products i will not enter again upon this now useless discussion since i propose in the following chapter to exhaust the subject of production by capital thus capital can be exchanged but cannot be a source of income labor and skill remain or as st simon puts it results and capacities i will examine them successively should wages be governed by labor in other words is it just that he who does the most should get the most i beg the reader to pay the closest attention to this point to solve the problem with one stroke we have only to ask ourselves the following question is labor a condition or a struggle the reply seems plain god said to man in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread that is thou shalt produce thy own bread with more or less ease according to thy skill in directing and combining the efforts thou shalt labor god did not say thou shalt quarrel with thy neighbor for thy bread but thou shalt labor by the side of thy neighbor and ye shall dwell together in harmony let us develop the meaning of this law the extreme simplicity of which renders it liable to misconstruction in labor two things must be noticed and distinguished association and available material in so far as laborers are associated they are equal and it involves a contradiction to say that one should be paid more than another for as the product of one laborer can be paid for only in the product of another laborer if the two products are unequal the remainder or the difference between the greater and the smaller will not be acquired by society 
and therefore not being exchanged will not affect the equality of wages there will result it is true in favor of the stronger laborer a natural inequality but not a social inequality no one having suffered by his strength and productive energy in a word society exchanges only equal products that is rewards no labor save that performed for her benefit consequently she pays all laborers equally with what they produce outside of her sphere she has no more to do than with the difference in their voices and their hair i seem to be positing the principle of inequality the reverse of this is the truth the total amount of labor which can be performed for society that is of labor susceptible of exchange being within a given space as much greater as the laborers are more numerous and as the task assigned to each is less in magnitude it follows that natural inequality neutralizes itself in proportion as association extends and as the quantity of consumable values produced thereby increases so in society the only thing which could bring back the inequality of labor would be the right of occupancy the right of property now suppose that this social task consists in the ploughing hoeing or reaping of two square decameters and that the average time required to accomplish it is seven hours one laborer will finish it in six hours another will require eight the majority however will work seven but provided each one furnishes the quantity of labor demanded of him whatever be the time he employs they are entitled to equal wages shall the laborer who is capable of finishing his task in six hours have the right on the ground of superior strength and activity to usurp the task of the less skilful laborer and thus rob him of his labor and bread who dares maintain such a proposition he who finishes before the others may rest if he chooses he may devote himself to useful exercise and labors for the maintenance of his strength and the culture of his mind and the pleasure of his life this he can do without injury to any one but let him confine himself to services which affect him solely vigor genius diligence and all the personal advantages which result therefrom are the work of nature and to a certain extent of the individual society awards them the esteem which they merit but the wages which it pays them is measured not by their power but by their production now the product of each is limited by the right of all if the soil were infinite in extent and the amount of available material were exhaustless even then we could not accept this maxim to each according to his labor and why because society i repeat whatever be the number of its subjects is forced to pay them all the same wages since she pays them only in their own products only on the hypothesis just made inasmuch as the strong cannot be prevented from using all their advantages the inconveniences of natural inequality would reappear in the very bosom of social equality but the land considering the reproductive power of its inhabitants and their ability to multiply is very limited further by the immense variety of products in the extreme division of labor the social task is made easy of accomplishment 
Now, through this limitation of things producible, and through the ease of producing them, the law of absolute equality takes effect. Yes, life is a struggle, but this struggle is not between man and man, it is between man and nature, and it is each one's duty to take his share in it. If in the struggle the strong come to the aid of the weak, their kindness deserves praise and love, but their aid must be accepted as a free gift, not imposed by force, nor offered at a price. All have the same career before them, neither too long nor too difficult. Whoever finishes it finds his reward at the end. It is not necessary to get there first. In printing offices, where the laborers usually work by the job, the compositor receives so much per thousand letters set, the pressman so much per thousand sheets printed. There, as elsewhere, inequalities of talent and skill are to be found. When there is no prospect of dull times, for printing and typesetting, like other trades, sometimes come to a standstill, everyone is free to work his hardest and exert his faculties to the utmost. He who does more gets more. He who does less gets less. When business slackens, compositors and pressmen divide up their labor. All monopolists are detested as no better than robbers or traitors. There is a philosophy in the action of these printers to which neither economists nor legists have ever risen. If our legislators had introduced into their codes the principle of distributive justice, which governs printing offices, if they had observed the popular instincts, not for the sake of servile imitation, but in order to reform and generalize them, long ere this liberty and equality would have been established on an immovable basis, and we should not now be disputing about the right of property and the necessity of social distinctions. It has been calculated that if labor were equally shared by the whole number of able-bodied individuals, the average working day of each individual in France would not exceed five hours. This being so, how can we presume to talk of the inequality of laborers? It is the labor of Robert Macaire that causes inequality. The principle, to each according to his labor, interpreted to mean who works most should receive most, is based therefore on two palpable errors, one an error in economy, that in the labor of society tasks must necessarily be unequal, the other an error in physics, that there is no limit to the amount of producible things. But, it will be said, suppose there are some people who wish to perform only half of their task. Is that very embarrassing? Probably they are satisfied with half of their salary, paid according to the labor they had performed. Of what could they complain? and what injury would they do to others? In this sense, it is fair to apply the maxim to each according to his results. It is the law of equality itself. Further, numerous difficulties relative to the police system and the organization of industry might be raised here. I will reply to them all with this one sentence, that they must all be solved by the principle of equality. Thus, someone must observe here is a task which cannot be postponed without detriment to production. Ought society to suffer from the negligence of a few, and will she not venture, out of respect for the right of labor, to assure with her own hands the product 
which they refuse her. In such a case, to whom will the salary belong? To society, who will be allowed to perform the labor either herself or through her representatives, but always in such a way that the general equality shall never be violated, and that only the idler shall be punished for his idleness. Further, if society may not use excessive severity toward her lazy members, she has a right, in self-defense, to guard against abuses. But even industry needs, they will add, leaders, instructors, superintendents, etc., Will these be engaged in the general task? No, since their task is to lead, instruct, and superintend. But they must be chosen from the laborers by the laborers themselves, and must fulfill the conditions of eligibility. It is the same with all public functions, whether of administration or instruction. Then, Article First of the Universal Constitution will be the limited quantity of available material proves the necessity of dividing the labor among the whole number of laborers, the capacity given to all of accomplishing a social task, that is, an equal task, and the impossibility of paying one laborer save in the products of another, justify the equality of wages. End of section 11, chapter 3, part 3. Recording by Mary Schneider.